Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hey, everybody. Hi, everyone. Special thanks to anybody who suffered through me last week and is back for a double dose. Um, appreciate you. Uh, welcome to the Commonwealth Club. My name's Tim Miller. I'm a writer at The Bulwark, longtime Commonwealth Club aficionado, so I'm very happy to, to have been invited to be here. Uh, last week I was here with Dan Pfeiffer for, I'm going to plug my new book first before we it. get to you, my new book, Why We Did It. Thank you. Um, on shelves now. Uh, it's been on the bestseller list three weeks, no big deal. Okay, not a big deal at all. Not that I'm counting, not that I'm counting or even looking. Um, but I, I was really, really pleased to be invited to do this um, and speak to somebody who uh, not only am I inspired by, but actually uh, did my best to not completely rip off uh, when I was writing my book. Um, <laughs> when my old publisher said, you know, who does some nonfiction writing that you like? really mostly a fiction writer, though. I did like that Leibovich book. And he was like, you should probably read another book besides Mark Leibovich's uh, before you write a book. Yeah. So I did. Um, and uh, I'm really just grateful to be here to do this. Um, uh, Mark Leibovich, if you don't know him, is a writer. The Atlantic used to be a national writer for The New York Times. Used to be out here at the San Jose Mercury News. Is a Boston Celtics fan. And his... That'll clear, his, that'll clear the room real quick. Yeah, his... Here. Uh, and his new book, Thank You for Your Servitude, uh, debuted today. It's number two on the New York Times bestseller list. Mark Goodman. Yeah. Number two like the Celtics. Number two just like the Celtics. Yeah. There's My no shame thing. in second. You know, you put in a really good effort. Did, and just like did. Jason you know, Tatum, you just kind of ran out of energy kind of right of at the end. Yeah. You know, you know something, there, there was something not right there at the end. Um, but pretty good. Well, um, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, I, I hope you guys have had a chance to read. Thank you for your servitude. If you don't, uh, it is a tale of much of what we've all lived through for the past six years. So read it I, anyway. I think you'll be familiar with the characters, but you should read it anyway. A very uh, insightful addition to it. But before we get to it, I, I want to go back to the book I referenced earlier, This Town, um, that you wrote uh, in 2013? 2012? Yeah. 2013. Uh, in 2013. Um, and, and This Town was very, it was not different in style, but, but very different in substance from this book, right? Uh, just uh, the notion of, you know, these halcyon days in Washington, of these bipartisan parties and these ridiculous people, you know, who are trading on access and trading on fame and the stakes seemed very low. Do you, you know, in some ways, as I was reading this new book, I felt like it maybe should have been called like this, what this town hath wrought yeah. uh, rather than right. thank you for your servitude. I, what, do, do you see a line between, you know, kind of the more anodyne corruptions of 2013 and how we got to now? Yeah, I do. I mean, um, wait, should I not break and praise you for, I mean, I could. I could no, I need to pray. All right, we'll just pray. Read Tim's book. It's great. Uh, no, seriously, it's, it's amazing, and I'm, I'll shut up now. But I, I will say I have praised books over the years that I either haven't read or haven't really liked. <laughs> I actually read every word of Tim's book, and it is one of the best political books I've ever read, and it inspired me. And not only, this is how much I liked it. We cover a lot of the same turf. Uh, a lot of the same characters, a lot of the same themes. And, you know, I'm not above petty competitiveness, <laughs> jealousy, um, you know, especially when our books are coming out around the same time. And it was so good, it transcended my petty jealousy. <laughs> and it just, it, 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 it was such a great advertisement for the book itself, for the story, and for the author. Uh, everyone should go out and buy that. I'm like uh, purple from blushing right now. No, no, no. Let's it's just all get on I mean, I've said this to you before, but it's yeah. all very sincere. Um, there is, this, I think, a bit of a straight line from, from this town. I mean, you're right. The stakes were much lower in the Washington of this town. I didn't quite know it at the time. Um, all, all I knew was that like people are, this, this felt, felt like a very frivolous, moneyed, sort of gilded capital, you know, and everyone was, you know, hating on Washington. It's always very fashionable for people outside of Washington to hate Washington and very fashionable for politicians to run against Washington and for politicians to run for president or Senate or Congress or whatever vowing to change Washington. Um, you know, Ronald Reagan did that. Barack Obama did that. Bill Clinton did that. George Bush did that. Uh, and Trump sort of brought it out writ large. But, but what Trump did is, 
First of all, I mean, there was such a critical mass of loathing for the for the political class, I think. It, you know, it really tipped over at the end of the Obama years. And, and Trump, in the sort of Trumpy way of his, he, he just created a cartoon around it, um, whatever the swamp was. But, you know, I, I think it was crude and disingenuous, but, and, you know, in, in Trump, in Trump, classic Trump style. But um, he definitely caught a level of contempt that a lot of people in America had for the, po- the political class and what wasn't getting done. And I thought it was interesting that, that Trump, you know, actually was supportive of, of things like infrastructure, at least, you know, lip service um, during the campaign. And, you know, he, he left entitlements alone. I mean, he actually did some pretty where he talked about, you know, classic like you know, just sort of like WPA like things. Right. I mean, and, and yet he didn't. Um, I mean, first of all, he didn't care, but what he, he just wanted to win. But he he the revulsion towards Washington was was something he kind of rode in on. And, um, you know, so the swamp was not drained by any means. But uh, I think there is a straight line. I have a follow up to that, but I forgot. I was so blushing from Mark's compliments. <laughs> I forgot to mention that uh, if you have a question here in the audience, I know you guys who are old pros know this. Uh, there are cards around there. You can write them on there and they'll be sent up to me. And if you're watching online. Uh, you can put your questions in the YouTube chat box there, and those questions will, will be brought to me too. Um, I've got pretty good questions, but we'd like to hear from you. Uh, what, I, I want to go a little deeper on that, though, about, the, about this kind of notion of the silliness right, of mm-hmm. Washington, right? And, and that you know, I, I think that there was a disconnect, like you say, between, the intra, uh, between you know, what regular people cared about and what the Washington class cared about. I think that was right. part of it. But also, we just kind of got wrapped up so much in the politics of politics that, it, I, you know, that, that it, I don't know that it should have been surprising that somebody could have, like Trump, who has Trump's skill set, right. you know, could have just run roughshod right. over this kind of silly political class, right? Like we were all, you know, try, doing the thinking we were celebrities and this right. is what you mock in this town. I quote right. quoted in, in, in the book. It's like, right. you know, you're walking through the airport and you're a minor celebrity now and there's a book, it's called Game Change and, and that's West Wing and like we right. all think that we're part of this thrilling screen game, you know, where right. we're, we're kind of like actors that are disconnected from, from real world concerns right. and, and yet actually we were a bunch of dorks, right? And so like, shouldn't it, totally. have been, it shouldn't have been surprising that Trump could have been better at this like phony game than us. Yes. And, and OK, a couple of things on that. I mean, first of all, I mean, there was this sort of celebrification of politics. I mean, it sort of right. started around West Wing. I mean, you know, TV can't blame TV for everything. But I mean, and West Wing was a great show, but it it definitely created like the celebrity operative, like the the Josh lineup. I mean, like, OK, we're walking really fast. We're self-important. Like we're these, the, you know, we're going to talk to the president and all that. And, um, you know, you, you, like I think I said in the book, I mean, you had um, in this town, you had like a lot of young operatives, young political types in Washington who worshipped Josh Lynham, Lyman and um, what's the guy's name? Kevin Spacey, Underwood, Frank Underwood, you know, rather than, you know, Ronald Reagan or Barack Obama or, or whoever. I mean, it was just like the game itself became really, really celebrified. And then you had, you know, TV shows like The Circus, okay, which is a, a Halperin Heilman, you know, the game change guys basically founded it. And Mark McKinnon, uh, who's a, a ad guy, basically, good, good guys. They're, I mean, they're. Well, some of you know, them. <laughs> yeah, they're, they, they're basically, they're steeped in the game, right? They love the sort of the, the horse race thing. And, you know, they, they commoditized it to a point where they were basically turning it into uh, the NFL today or, or some kind of sporting version of, like, horse race politics. And, and then, you know, you had all of these, I mean, all, there's a lot of TV and movies, and it just became, you'd have things like, Remember the uh, HBO movie on the McCain campaign where, you know, Sarah Palin, whoever played Sarah Palin was like eerily too much like Sarah Palin, like even more than uncanny valley situation. Oh, uncanny. And, you know, yes, she was phenomenal. It was a great performance. But I remember there was like a red carpet opening in D.C. and like Steve Schmidt. Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. Yes. Like they were all walking in side by side. And this was kind of gross. But it was also... Everyone needed to be there. 
Tammy Haddad, who is like the party planner, host person. She's in game. She's in this town. Uh, she hates me uh, still to this day. Um, she, uh, you know, she planned the whole thing, the whole like guest list and everything. So, yeah, it became ridiculous. And Trump, you know, is shallow enough to appreciate politics that way because he watches the shows. And yeah. I remember the first time I met him, he was like, I feel like I know you because I've seen you on TV. It's an honor to meet you. I'm like, whatever. Um, but, you know, he loves that. He's, 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 you know, watches TV constantly. So that's his experience of politics. But the world of politics in reality, and in also that, is, is on unwritten rules. It's, it's basically, all right, we're all kind of in on the same deal here. We follow basic norms. Um, and Trump had no respect for decency or norms or rules or laws. And, yeah, I mean, he, he just, like, he did run roughshod over everything. And I remember he actually told me when I was writing about him in 15 or early 16, he said, you know, I just see weakness in these people. Like everyone I just got off the debate stage with, they're going to fold. Like it might take a while for, you know, Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or Jeb to, to sort of just come around. But, I, you know, I, I deal with people 20 times as tough. And, you know, he's just kind of chest bumping in his own way. But they all did sort of bend to his will. And all the tough talk about how, you know, the party is going to hell and we can't do this. You know, I mean, there's not a profile in courage among them except for maybe, well, not Lindsay, not Rubio, not Cruz. <laughs> Jeb just sort of went away. He, well, Jeb sort of. He went Jebish. away. Jebish. He's a Jeb guy. Um, um, but no, look, I mean, he, he did run roughshod. He brought the, the party basically to heel. And, um, you know, they didn't do anything about it. And so Trump is a guy who's going to take what he's going to get. But he didn't honor the he, he didn't he didn't play by any rules, but he also appreciated the shallowness of politics as a celebrity. Yeah, there's the Denny Green like we are. Isn't Denny Green that we are what you, we thought you were? You yeah, know, we thought you were like they were absolutely. Um, like the shallowness and the cowardly. I mean, so do you look back to the last one in this town? But like, so do you look back on that and feel like, man, that was even grosser than I thought. Like that, I thought that I, I had an ironic detachment from it, and yeah. I knew it was gross. But but now, in retrospect, it looks grosser, or kind of not really. No, it looks kind of harmless, actually. It looks like I mean, as much as I want to sell copies of this town, like, <laughs> and it's a you know, you should read it. But okay. it's um, it's uh, yeah, it's obsolete. It's a, it's it's an well, it's not obsolete, but it's a, it's an old world. It's a different world. It's the stakes were lower, and ultimately, the center held in those days. Okay, so um, you know all these characters better than anybody, right? After, after spending all this time in Washington, writing profiles about all of them, writing this town. We get to 2015, mm-hmm. and, um, and that's kind of the beginning of this book, right? Yeah. The 2015, Trump's winning, winning these primaries. Did you just see, like, obviously you knew they were kind of weak and a little shallow, but, but yeah. did you see the total submission coming? Like, did you sense it at all that, um, that was possible? Well, I, first of all, didn't sense Trump winning. I mean, right. I was like everyone else. I, I didn't see that coming. Um, once he won. Once he won. Once he won. Um, I don't know, man. The, the, some of the, the rhetoric of the people, once they were going down, like Rubio and Cruz. Literally everybody in their, and everybody every, in their concession speech. Yeah. And was like, this guy is going to be Hitler. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty out there. I mean, obviously, you know, people say people talk shit about their opponent, like during primaries and things get, you know, can get pretty hot. And, you know, so you, you see that. But I mean, this I mean, I remember talking to Rubio, like right at the end, probably like he probably dropped out like in March or April. Yeah. And he um, he was just totally defeated. And he just like. He was like, not only was he just horrified by Trump, but he was horrified on behalf of, you know, conservatism. I mean, you know, Rubio could at least act like a real true believer. Like, I remember when I wrote about him when he first ran for Senate. I mean, he had this really good rap about, you know, just like being a son of immigrants and Castro and and everything. But he he just seemed defeated. He was going to leave the Senate. He said, all right, I've, I've had enough. I'm just done. And, you know, that lasted two weeks. Um, so, um, yeah, I couldn't, I, I, it's still amazing to me. And then, like, you know, they all had these stupid rationales, like, well, I have to endorse him because now that it's clear that Hillary Clinton will be the nominee of the Democratic Party, like, you know, like, who saw that coming? Um, uh, you know, I must, uh, I must come around. But, yeah, I, I didn't, I, I actually thought that, that some people would, like, not do anything. Um. So then we get to you know, kind of, I, I guess, the 
stage of your book, this uh, yeah. Thank You for servitude, uh, Your Servitude, which is the Trump Hotel. Yep. Right? And this is where you, you just have such different perspective than me because I bailed on town after mm-hmm. Trump won. I was like, I could yeah. never even broach the doors of that place. I mean, A, they you ever go like, at all? Never went one time. I couldn't bring myself to do it yeah. for starters. And yeah. also I, it may have been an unsafe space <laughs> in, a, in a literal sense. At least yeah. that's what I thought. Yeah. Then I'm reading your book and you said, and it's uh, you say that actually you'd see Michael Steele, Michael Steele. Um, at yeah. the, at the hotel. And he was a vocal anti-Trumper like me. And um, you said that people were nice to him. So why, So just for those who haven't read it yet, like, like yeah. paint a picture for what this town was like from the, from the vantage point of the yeah. hotel lobby at the Trump sure. Hotel. Sure. Yeah. No, the, the, so the Trump Hotel was this new hotel. It went up in 2016. And it was located on Pennsylvania Avenue, like literally between the White House and the Capitol. And it was a beautiful space. It was a historic building, the old post office building. And... Um, you know, they did a great job renovating it. Um, I mean, it was just gorgeous. And, you know, it was just very pricey bar, restaurant, steakhouse, the BLT steakhouse and hotel. And it was basically the capital of, of Republican Washington. But it was also, it was Rick's American Cafe. It's like, you know, it was the Payola Palace, right? I mean, you would literally have Republicans using their their campaign fund money, like spending tens of thousands of dollars to, you know, run these functions, to these fundraisers, these strategy sessions. The RNC did all that, and then of course the the game was you got to let the president know because the hotelier, you know, even though he's busy with his side hustle down the street, he would <laughs> like to know that you are spending your money and giving him money. Um, it is that it was so over the top, and you know you literally have people who wanted a pardon, spending tens of thousands of dollars on a bar tab, buying five thousand dollar bottles of champagne. Again, just let the president know it. You know, post it on Instagram. Um, it would you know word would often filter back to him. I mean, it's just stunning what you would see, and you'd see members of Congress. You'd see a lot of members of the cabinet. You know, Steve Mnuchin, the Secretary of the Treasury, lived there. His wife had this little purse dog that she would walk around with. Uh, Rudy had a place there, or at least had like a suite that he would use there. Um, you know, a lot of lobbyists, uh, a lot of just, you know, a lot of journalists. I mean, you can get a lot of work done there. Um, people who worked in the White House were often so traumatized by what they would go through every day. Uh, you, they would they become like therapy sessions. I mean, it was it was not a difficult White House to cover as far as like there were a lot of desperate and vulnerable and really, really seemingly miserable people just hanging out, drinking a lot afterward. So it was bizarre. Um, and Trump himself would come in sometimes and he would never eat anywhere outside the White House that other than his own with his, you know, a big gold plated name like place on on the building. And so he'd go to the BLT steak. He would always get a 40 ounce tomahawk steak. Well done. French fries, shrimp cocktail, chocolate cake for dessert. Um, yeah, how that man, table's got to be working in our how favor. How that man remained time. alive for four years. How our how our nation rely, remained alive for four years. So uh, yeah, and then but he also needed the applauded entrance, the exit, people standing on their chairs. Michael Steele, like I, he told he told me stories about being in there for when the tin pot dictator would leave, and everyone would be like Trump, 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 and people would stand and he'd be like, that was just so wild and. Uh, and yeah, yeah. Don Jr. ran so into him. It feels so. Like, it feels it's, foreign. It's third world. Okay. Yeah, it, it's or, or Banana Republic or something. Yeah. I, I, um, one it, thing I wanted to ask you about that hotel lobby scene since you were there. That's something that I try to grapple with. I really just wrote. I wrote about the people I know. Mm-hmm. So everybody yeah. in my book basically is uh, you know somebody that was that would fit on this category of like the moderate Republican would have been fine working for McCain. Like no, yeah. you know not. Uh, everybody has their own flaws, but they aren't like white nationalists. Like, right. you know, I was working that book. Okay. But, but something happened today in the news. Um, my friends at Republican Accountability Project put this out. A guy named Garrett Ziegler, who's a White House aide. You could probably picture this guy in your head. Um, you know, he looks like he went to Duke. Yeah. Um, he said on his Telegram feed that the uh, January 6th committee is anti-white and that, uh, his, uh, and that Cassidy Hutchison is a hoe bag and a thought. Um, Guy seems pretty authentically Trump, um, just yeah. based on this one quote. Like, so if you're looking at that, you know, kind of obviously you didn't interview everybody in the lobby, but categorize yeah. for me, like, what percentage of these people are just 
there for the grift? You know, like, did you get the sense that, like, did he feel weird? Like, was there a little bit of a KKK vibe uh, oh. happening? You know, or was it just, like, people in Washington who who just like, this is the new rule. I'm a lobbyist. And so if it was Hillary, I'd be, you know, lobbying Tony Podesta, you know, yeah. versus true believer. Like, like what was the scene like there? As great far as great question. Uh, I, first of all, I did not like going in there. I mean, it's like, Oh, you know, he's a reporter. He's like, you know, spending time in a bar. It's like, you know, well, great work if you can get it. No, it was a weird vibe. I didn't like it. And it was, uh, but you didn't get a sense. It was not menacing. Although what was always unnerving is, you know, you just knew you're being watched. You, you yeah. I mean, you just knew that um, they were watching the reporters closely. You knew that they had like a lot of personal information, probably based on you know, credit card information. We, you know, whatever. I mean, we're just acting like regular customers. So that was always unnerving. You did feel like you were being watched, but um, no, it just felt like kind of a tacky, moneyed crowd that you know many of them were recognizable just as political and media consumers would would know them um but no they didn't i wouldn't say they seemed like it didn't feel like different i I guess that's what i'm trying to get at right it it didn't feel feel, old washington crowd like republican crowd just trying to reskin themselves for trump or was there this kind of were there these garrett ziegler's you're kind of looking around going man there were garrett ziegler's in there i'm sure it was and and there was also it was fairly young i mean you had a lot of first of all people drank so much they were i mean there was just a lot there was too much debauchery for like an old like kind of Romney Bush kind of fundraiser crowd, right? Um, But so there was that. And, and, um, you know, there was also an active celebrity culture. Like Sean Spicer walks in. He's going to get pounded for selfies. And he's going to love it because he's Sean Spicer. And uh, but great send up of Sean. um, Sean Spinkter, we're talking about. Yes, Uh, better than in my. But no. So. um, uh, So, yeah, I don't know. I just didn't like hanging out there anyway it was sort of abandoned you know covid kind of ruined it so uh but so there's this tension right though among that crowd and so you're kind of i'm just trying to explore like there's the spicers who i think you quote you quote spicer i have here saying like hopefully trump will lose by enough that he would never come back again spicer is an old style rnc RNC classic he would if he could snap his fingers make trump disappear from the earth and mike pence president he would snap right probably yeah yeah um and then you have the tin pock dictator crowd yeah right and and i I think that what's kind of interesting to explore is just like how much they they really had the power right i mean it was like it's interesting like all these guys you interview Lindsay. You know, Kevin, Trump's Kevin. Right? Like yeah. they all, they all, Trump's yeah, Kevin. they all think that they have agency. But like, the, but right? I mean, did, yeah. did you? Was there a Children of the Corn vibe where you kind of <laughs> saw them getting like, where yeah. you start talking to my Kevin and be like, man, you're really starting to buy into this? Oh, not really. I mean, Kevin's <laughs> too no. stupid to buy this. <laughs> too stupid. I mean, I think part of um, Ke- Kevin was also just kind of traumatized in some way. He just seemed very. Just he's, he seemed more miserable almost than anyone else. Not because he knows better, but because he's just he has completely lost control of the situation. A guy like Lindsay is a little twisted. I mean, he is um, he kind of um, he loves the brute force of Trump in some ways. Like he he lo- I think he watch, has a, watch your language. Though. No, no, he loves like the sort of he loves the devious way of winning. He he. Um, I'm I'm sorry. No, he just, he, I don't know. I, I, he seemed to kind of, um, oh, I almost said, I almost said get off. He he seemed, he seemed to really, um, I don't know. After a certain point, he, he, he really seemed into this a little bit. Let's, Um, let's talk about Lindsay. Um, because I wrote this quote, this was, I thought this was the most depressing quote, I think maybe of the whole book. It was a very depressing book, but for some reason this, but it's funny. It's it's funny. It's enjoyable. Wild, but still, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Both, both can exist. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, uh, I, I forget if he is, I just wrote this after, so I forget if he's telling it to you or if you're relaying this. But he says, the knock on me and John is that we are too high on our horse. Yeah, I said that. And for some reason, that quote really kind of stuck with me. Because I think it, it, was, it really distilled this like, capture of these yeah. guys yes. by the Trumpian ethos. Right? Like, yes. That when John McCain was still around, 
There's nothing wrong with being a little high on your horse. This Absolutely. is public service. You're trying to do right. You're trying to to do best right by people. Yeah. And, and so like Lindsay's whole mindset had flipped right? right from like trying to do right by people was actually wrong. That was that made me condescending and naive. Yes. In the context of him saying that I heard uh, as being I'm liberated now. Right. Don't have to be high on the horse anymore. John's dead. And like I, you know, I got I, I traded up. I got a new I got a new alpha dog here. And, um, you know, we don't do the high on the horse thing. We can just do, you know. Then so then you're talking to McCain mm-hmm. about during this time. Yeah. Like, I mean, did he just seem he, was it disappointed? Was it a father figure? Was it tormented, confused? How would you kind of explain he, his he, view of what was happening to Lindsay? OK, a couple things on McCain. First of all. McCain has played versions of this game before. Okay, I mean, McCain has contorted himself to suck up to the base, you know, when he's got a primary thing coming up in Arizona. Like 2010, became a kind of an immigration hardliner. Um, You know, he understood uh, that game. And, you know, he picked Sarah Palin. That was, you know, she was not the most qualified person to be the vice president, and he knew it. Um, But... You know, so but but McCain did have a line, and at the end, and he was obviously not shy about talking about his low opinion of, of Trump. I mean, we all heard it many times in very many different ways. But he he, I mean, remember the last maybe the second to last conversation I had with him. He said, you know, no one in my party has any self respect. You know, I just e- even if I weren't like in the condition I'm in now, and he, he had brain cancer, you know, he was dying. I would like to think that I wouldn't be sucking up to him like these people are. Um, and it's just it comes down to self-respect, self-respect. He didn't trash Lindsay to me at that point. I knew that he and Lindsay had had a real, not a great ending. Um, and McCain was pretty open to him about what he was doing. And, you know, I think they had some tough conversations. But mostly, you know, McCain felt really shitty. And that's a pretty deep criticism coming from a guy like John McCain that you don't have any respect for yourself. Absolutely. And, and I think he was 100% sincere. And, by the way, I agree with him. I mean, I think what they, yeah, what I think a lot of people did, and they, they all knew better, um, was, um, you know, M- McCain just thought it was like the most un-American, cowardly thing you can imagine. Um, Laura McCain, there was, uh, uh, you, you wrote a scene from McCain's funeral. He loved, a, you love a funeral scene. Love a funeral. Um, Gotta have a funeral and, scene. And uh, that's, uh, that's kind of a... I guess you're not Irish Catholic, but you're from Boston, so you can I, have you know picked what? up the funeral I can pass element. For it. Yeah, I you can, can pass, pass for right? It. Yeah. Um, so there were two things from the McCain funeral thing that sucked out to me. One is more of just a uh, complaint. Um, I had forgotten that Javanka was invited yep. to that funeral. Lindsay did so that. So that, that really pained me all over mm-hmm. again to have to read that. They had a receiving uh, line there. At the, yeah, right and then the, the scene you, of Lindsay patting, patting uh, Jared the on bicep. the tricep. Yeah, tricep. That was a mental image I didn't need. Yeah, Um, you're welcome. But the bigger thing about the funeral is it felt like this way at the time, but now we have a little distance. Uh, You know, we we talked at the beginning of this conversation about, like, the seediness of this town or, like, Mm -hmm. the shallowness of it. But, like... Republican, the, what Washington also had some good elements, right? There was a seriousness, uh, like a, yeah. a uh, you know, a respect for, you know, history. You know, most yeah. of these people really are deeply, back then, are deeply yeah. read and yeah. like care about the Constitution and care about the country. Yeah. And, and this, like, the McCain funeral kind of felt like this. I don't know if we're going to have these types of people anymore. Right. Is, that, is that just an old man, you know, fist in a cloud thing? Or did that feel like, what's your... Sense? No, I mean, I, it, it was definitely, I mean, there are certain funerals that have end of an era vibe to them. I mean, Tim Russert's funeral was featured in this town, um, an obsolete book. But, you know, if you want to, <laughs> for history's sake, you might want to check it out. Um, but... The McCain funeral, I mean, the media kind of stupidly overreached, and they said this was a, a, a punchback from the old Washington, and the establishment was actually answering Trump, and Trump was not invited, and, and he was never mentioned, but everyone knew, you know, what, what this was like a counter to the Trump world, and, you know, uh, McCain really choreographed the whole thing. For He'd have, like, these Friday meetings with his staff to plan out the funerals. He had six different memorial services. Said, That's a flex, right? I mean, for, before McCain had, like, memorials, multiple memorial services, he had multiple birthday parties. I remember it was pretty funny. Um, but he, uh, yeah, but he wanted Obama and Bush to eulogize him. 
um, you know, both former presidents who inflicted very bitter defeats on him, um, one in 2000, one in 2008. And I, I think he did it because, you know, he's, he's got a pretty high self-regard. And he figured if he can get a couple presidents to eulogize you um, that you have relationships with, but sort of rock it, he just, it was, it was a good move. He also knew it would drive Trump crazy, so he was all into that. Um, but, a little spite as you go into the grave. Oh, you know? it was good. It's high-level spite. If you can get a couple presidents to piss spite. off it. But so the media, so the media, I think, overstated it. But it definitely had that feel of like the old Washington um, sort of checking in a little bit. Now, it was pretty clear that this was temporary. I mean, tr- Trump, you know, because he's one of the great self-satirists in history, uh, he tweeted through the whole service um, about... Mueller being unfair to him about uh, how they were all defending Hillary and Obama. I mean, whatever. I mean, he was golfing and um, and but but so yeah. And then you had this scene, and you know, Ivanka, yeah, Ivanka shows up. And by the way, this is another great thing. So Mattis and uh, Jim Mattis and um, who was there was someone else, John Kelly, um, who was then I think chief of staff, former general. They escorted Cindy McCain into like it, it to some of the I think into the, the ceremony and that was caught on TV and uh, Trump apparently had a hissy fit because you know it felt like a betrayal to him by two members of his cabinet or staff or something. Um, but so yeah, but you but you know but I don't think it was a major like blow to Trump, but I also think it was a great juxtaposition. And you're right, I mean those things don't exist anymore. But I remember the last. Story I ever wrote for the New York Times at the end of last year was Bob Dole's funeral. Same thing, right? And but that was two years on, and everyone knew that that was like a little toe touch from the old normal, right? I mean, no one thought that this was like a blow. But you know, you had Biden speaking, and um, I don't know. That's why, I, as a Washington reporter, I love tribal events like yeah. But to, but so when you look back on that, though, and that I'm just that wasn't BS, right? Like there was a better no. angels element. To I the thought old so. Days. Yeah, and, and and so is that actually gone right or is it you know if trump just you know if that 140 ounce you know catches up with them is that returnable or is that actually oh, you, gone? well no it's not right i don't i mean i don't think so i think um first of all you know we're seven years into trump yeah. i mean he is like deeply into the cellular um fabric if that's a term yeah. of the republican party now i mean i remember did I tell you this? I don't know if I told you this. But uh, so at Dole's funeral, it was big COVID moment. I mean, it was like a, there was a big wave of COVID. And it was at the National Cathedral, big indoor space, probably about 3,000 people, like elbow to elbow, many very old people. Uh, and they're, it's posted all over the cathedral, like a, a, a cathedral, a national historic landmark that, you know, everyone wear a mask. Everyone just wear a mask. You know, the, the family has requested it. It's a funeral. Like, if there was ever a place to wear a mask, this is the place for a lot of reasons. Um, and everyone wore a mask, except I was sitting in the press area, and it was overlooking where the senators were sitting, and uh, Ted Cruz did not wear a mask. Ted Cruz very prominently was standing up not wearing a mask, and it was clear what he was doing. He wanted to, he was inviting some kind of scene. He yeah. wanted to be either escorted great. out. He wanted like a Fox. He wanted like an attaboy from Fox. Uh, he, you know, you know, you just knew what he was doing. And I, just to make sure I, I emailed a Senator who I know who was sitting right next to him. And I said, did I miss something? Or was he actually not wearing a mask? And she, well, he or she <laughs> wrote back, um, to me and said, yep, that makes me feel just, better. I've done that a bunch with yeah, my anonymous sources, just, and I'm well, like, oh, I'm not an yeah. old-time reporter. Like, leave yeah, it. Yeah, no, no. Careful. Uh, he or she uh, <laughs> confirmed. No, but so, again, there's always going to be a Ted Cruz in the group. I mean, like, there's no shame, yeah. right? He doesn't have shame. His party's not going to shame him. They're not going to do anything. And, and, you know, thankfully, no one made a scene, so he didn't get, like, his little, you know, pat on the head from Fox that night for violating, like, the most basic, decent rule of masking. Yeah, I think about two things when you talk about like Trump now being in the cellular element of our political life. Like one is we're just talking about this guy, you know, and the hoe bag guy. Um, yeah. He, I don't know how old he is. He looks on the picture like he might be twenty-five. Yeah. yeah, but so. so Trump's been here for seven years, though, right? So he was seventeen. 
Yeah. But it's just, you know, and if Trump's around for a few more years, if you're a 28-year-old, like 28-year-olds right. start to have real jobs in Washington, right? Absolutely. Um, and, yeah. and their whole adult life has been Trump, right? So, so, so there's this whole little now posse of mini magas running around. And then mm-hmm. we have this question for the audience, um, which is related, which is how do you have a civil and a respectable conversation with somebody who wholeheartedly believes the big lie? And it's so, like these sorts of elements, little yeah. Trump imitators, and then these just really out of the ordinary conspiracies and lies, yeah. like both contribute to this. Uh, how can you, you know, how could you have a, a funeral service 20 years from now where, you, yeah. where Democrats come and eulogize like big lie supporters, right? Like it's yeah, the big lies, that, that's a rough one. I mean, I, I, um, we, I think we talked about this. I mean, I have had more, you know, common cause with conservative friends and read more conservative writers um, in the last six, seven years than I've ever had before. And, and like in a very positive way, I've like learned the work of some some conservatives who I really respect, but they're all never Trumpers. Okay. I mean, to me, if you're a Trumper, I, I, I just, I mean, I, first of all, I le- legitimately have not heard a compelling intellectual defense for him at this point. Right. I mean, I suppose there were some early on about, okay, you got to blow everything up. You know, maybe... Fight 93, you weren't compelled yeah, by the fact no, that wasn't need that. to crash the whole country no, no, into I the remember, field in Pennsylvania. Well, did I, I, I don't know if I told you this, but there was, after Trump one in 16, um, you know, the New York Times magazine staff had a meeting the next day, and I hope I'm not talking out of school, but there was, <laughs> there was a little bit of distress among the group. Um, uh, yeah, so, um, but I, I remember saying to Jake um, Silverstein, who's the editor, I said, you know, I could probably write 10 reasons why this might not be the worst thing in the world. You know, if you want something, I can just throw it online. I mean, you know, maybe it took something like this to shake up the system. You know, he didn't really raise money. Maybe that's positive. He says he's going to drain this line. You know, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, really? That'd be kind of interesting. It'd be kind of counterintuitive. I said, yeah, I think I can do it because I was up all night last night trying to think of how this might be okay. I tried I don't, a lot of things. I was like, I just didn't sleep that night. So um, we had very different reactions. To the yeah, result, we but did. I, I we admire did. your uh, well. It was kind of sunny optimism. It wasn't. Sun- oh, believe me, it was. I had to work hard for it. And then I think literally within three days, like Mike Flynn was named um, uh, national security advisor. Ivanka and Jared were appointed senior advisors. Um, Bannon was about to be named whatever job he had. And I remember I called up Jake. I said. Never mind. (laughs) This is just going to be a fucking shit show. Um, And um, so that was, uh, yeah, so that assignment was um, aborted fairly quickly. Um, Um, This related to another um, uh, comment that you had in the book. This is from an anonymous Congress person, so you, okay. you may or may not uh, reveal their gender here okay. after this question. Yeah, um, uh, I, I paraphrase it here, but so it's something to the effect of um, uh, everybody now is trying to be, compete to be a bigger dickhead to com- to appeal to the biggest dickhead. Yep. And um, I, I thought it was pretty telling that that person had to be anonymous. Anonymous. I asked that person, him, sorry. I asked him, like, you sure I can't put this on the record? I mean, you they're know. They're retiring? Do I have this? Right? Yeah. yeah they're a retiring, retiring congressperson. And he said, well, I, I better not. And I know this sounds ridiculous, but um, I might have to lobby them one day. I kind of appreciate the over-the-topness of them cowardly not saying their name. I mean, the over, I, it, was, it was very revealing. Normally, I wouldn't. Actually, I probably would. It was just, it was a great quote, but yeah, the reason for anonymity was that he didn't want to offend the people he might have to be lobbying. But isn't that telling just about the fact that, so sometimes I just think about all this and I'm like, man, you know, Washington always was kind of grimy and like, but like there's, uh, this is a meaningful difference, right? Like this is a person that is being replaced Mm -hmm. and, and they are in this conversation with you participating in kind of an old school Washington grift. Mm -hmm. I want to lobby. So I'm going to have to be anonymous when I criticize my friends. Not great, not perfect, but okay. That, you know, feels kind of quaint. That person is now being replaced by somebody who, according to them is their top goal is to be as big of a dickhead as possible. Absolutely. Like, this feels like entropy, right? To like taking hold here oh, yeah. as far as, 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 you know, where, uh, you know, when, so when people start to be like, is this fixable? Right. You know, like comments like that, like have to give you a lot oh, of yeah. Pause. No, it does. I mean, look, I mean, so Claire McCaskill, I mean, moderate Democrat was replaced yeah. by Josh Hawley. Um, yeah. You know, um, 
What's your name? Heidi Heitkamp was replaced by Kevin Kramer, who, yeah, I mean, then, you can go to, okay, but now these are Democrats who lost seats in red states, but, you know, Bob, right yeah, okay, yeah, J.D. Vance could, will probably, could probably, you know, defeat Rob, Por- or, or replace Rob Portman. You know, Bob Corker was replaced by this guy Bill Haggerty in Tennessee. I mean, it's, it's not as if, like, the Republican Party that, might, you know, or Herschel Walker could replace, well, anyway, you can go down the, you can go down the list. Um, uh, well, yeah, Pat Toomey could be replaced Do you by have Dr. a Herschel profile coming down the No, I don't. I'd like to get I you down to, no, to I don't. I just don't. I, no, I hate it. I, I don't like writing about people like that. Um, but, it, but no, I mean, yeah, I mean, this, it's not like the, um, all right, we're going to come to our senses uh, sector of the Republican Party is coming in to take over. I mean, I, I do think that, that because of some of these problematic candidates for Senate. In, in, I mean, I think that might actually possibly save the Senate for Democrats. But. So this, is, this takes us to the fundamental difference in our books. Are you ready okay. for this? We have, oh, yeah. We fundamental have differences. Dis- we have a little disagreement. We need a little like, um, and, alert. Uh, tell me, uh, maybe it's not a disagreement, but I think it is. Uh, you're, you basically posit that the problem here, uh, you know, looking back but also forward, is a top-down problem, Right. These guys are cowards mm-hmm. on, on the Republican side. Yeah. Like the, these guys are cowards. They won't stand up to him. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, things are not going to get better until we get new, more responsible people. Mm-hmm. Basically, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Yeah. My view is more like, actually, no, this is, this is a bottom-up problem. Mm-hmm. Like, people want the dickheads. Right. And as long as people want dickheads, then that's what they're going to get. And so... If if you do accidentally get a person who decides that they have a con- you know a conscience one day and wants to show leadership, they're just going to get the Liz Cheney and Jeff Flake and Adam Kinzinger, God love them all, treatment, you know, and get put out to pasture. Uh, okay, I would. We do have a different view because I would say first of all, maybe Liz Cheney and you know Jeff Flake. Or, I think they have all in some ways done a world of good. I, I think the reason you have a bottom up problem is because. Yeah, I think it's symbiotic, right? It's definitely symbiotic. But, like, there's a vacuum of leadership. There's a vacuum of moral leadership. There's a vacuum of intellectual leadership. There's a vacuum of courage at, you know, many levels of politics, but, but certainly in the ranks of the Republican Party. And I don't, for the life of me, know why the job is worth it. I mean, I, I understand why you don't need the hassle, why your spouse doesn't need the hassle, why you don't want to be tweeted at. You know, there's a lot of shit that gets thrown your way if you become someone who steps out. Um, but I don't know. I would love to see them try. I mean, you know, I think if there was like some, anything similar to the volume of, of criticism that Trump got during the 16 campaign was actually done from Republicans when he was president, you know, people voting for impeachment. I mean, I, I doubt they would have gotten, I mean, I doubt they would have convicted him. I mean, but like Republicans privately thought that like the first impeachment, I mean, if you're going to be honest with you, it was a pretty shitty, you know, it was pretty worth it. I mean, in some ways, I mean, I can sort of see where it's, it's, it was inappropriate, that phone call and what they were doing, but not impeachable. I mean, I remember, um, yeah, I think I wrote about this, um, Marv Thornberry, uh, sort of conservative, defense-minded. Will Hurd had this position. Will Hurd. I didn't agree with, but it was yeah. the I got it. But I remember it's funny because Paul Ryan got on the phone with Kevin McCarthy and said, what, what Thornberry did, you should do it. Just, like, get, get it on the record that this was wrong, and um, then, yeah, but it's not impeachable. That'll be, like, the party line because you can't – you don't want to try to defend this. And so – um, McCarthy's like, yeah, 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 let's let's do that. And of course, like in a couple of hours, Trump tweets something about Thornberry. He says, "This coward, like he begged me." I mean, you know, he did this stupid Trump thing. And then McCarthy lost whatever tiny shred of nerve he had, and um, you know, didn't do anything. But I don't know. I, I think. Do you ever put this to these guys? I mean, you're talking to them. Yeah. You know, they don't talk to me, unfortunately. We're actually worse than the enemy of the people, the never-Trumpers. <laughs> like, we're even below you. I can't even Well, the bull, you guys are, you know, you're traitors. Yeah, we're traitors. We're literally traitors. So, um, so um, you're talking to, you know, obviously you want to maintain the source, so you're not like, no. you're not like pointing their finger, like, why don't you show some balls? But like, when you bring it up to them, like, what yeah. do they say? Like, like they, their defense. I mean, okay, well, Ryan was the one probably who, who spoke most openly about this. And, you know, he said, well, the counterfactual is we'd have a pissing match and we'd get nothing done. So basically what Ryan's saying is, I got my tax cut. 
Um, you know, the caucus basically, you know, didn't make my life totally miserable, and I'm retiring now anyway. But, yeah, they, they all said, oh, it's unproductive. Like, that's their big word. It's unproductive. It's not constructive, you know, to have a pissing match with them. And, then, of course, then they go to the, well, we have very constructive private conversations, the adult <laughs> in the room thing, right? So they, were, they would be like, yes, yeah, but I, I feel like a... And Brian himself said explicitly... I, have, I can be able, at the end of the day, to say I avoided that tragedy and that tragedy and that tragedy. And I said, wait a minute, Mr. Speaker. He was Speaker then. This was in 18. He said, what, what tragedies? What, what are you talking about? What have we missed here? He goes, I've already said too much. <laughs> and, um, I mean, he was, he was pretty shaken by the Trump experience. I mean, not, to, yeah. not that it defends him. Not, not, should, not that it justifies him being Yeah, but this box. goes to the Reince question. Right? Like, if that's true, then what? Right? Like, and it's the same thing about Paul Ryan. Like, I said that Reince gave that same shtick to me, right? When yeah. I was talking, and talking to him for the book. And it's, just, and it's like, okay. And then I was like, well, okay. Well, then why, why didn't you oppose him? Then why didn't you jump out? Like, once it was too late for you to do it. I, I get then the logic of, okay, he's in here for four years. Yeah. But then none of them did anything here's and none of them did and here's like here's the perfect sort of object lesson okay and i remember saying this i don't know if i said this to him but the aforementioned sean spicer okay day one he's in the white house press secretary job he's like you know he's decided he's made his choice this is he's the only president i mean no one's asking me to be white house press secretary This, this is the gig day one president's having a hissy fit calls him into the overall office with reince and kellyanne conway said do you see how they're covering the crowd? I mean, they're saying Obama's crowd was bigger. They're showing pictures. This is just wrong. It's dishonest. Get out there and call a briefing and tell them that they're wrong. And we all live through this. So Spicer, you know, kind of his eyes bulge out. And he says, uh, Mr. President, I don't think that we should do that. And, you know, he said, it's, I think he said, it's beneath you. It's beneath you, Mr. President. You know, and as I said in the book, nothing is beneath him. And two, you know, Spicer knew that he was going to be the face of this debacle. I think I said the ruddy face of this debacle. And so if Spicer, I mean, I know it would be really hard, but what if Spicer on day one said, Mr. President, I'm not going to do that. And he said he would either fire him or said, go do it anyway, and then he'd resign or something like that. Okay. Or maybe he'd get bored and start tweeting about something else in two hours. And he had like, well, uh, whatever. like a gnat, right? Maybe. Who knew? I mean, it was day one. He was freaked out. I mean, whatever. I mean, can you imagine... I mean, it would have been, would it be embarrassing? Would it be uncomfortable to have to quit or be fired on day one? Maybe a little. Would it be awkward? Yeah, maybe a little. It would be like, that guy would, like, his whole trajectory could have been different. Yeah. Not that, like, we'd be sitting here celebrating him, but, like, what a a ballsy thing that would have been to do. I mean, I would have done it, I think. I mean, I, you know, it's just, I, I would have loved some more dramatic resignations throughout this. I mean, that would have been both satisfying and noble, and it maybe, you know, would have moved the needle a little bit. Um, two more things, then I'm going to get to some audience questions. What, um, uh, th- this period, I-, I think the key period for me, mm-hmm. um, and I'm sitting on my couch in Oakland, uh, yeah. so I don't have as, as personal insight as you, yeah. is between the 6th and the impeachment vote, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know there are 17 of these guys that want to convict them at least, probably Absolutely. 52. Okay, yep. or however many yeah. more at the time, uh, yeah. 53. Um, so they only get seven senators to, mm-hmm. to, to actually vote to convict. You're kind of having conversations during this time with some of these people. Like, yeah. uh, you know, this kind of ties directly into this cowardice. Like, is there a counterfactual where, like, they could have... Like, could somebody have done it? Could Mitch have done it? Like, is there, like, what, I, like, do you, is there regrets over that right now, do you think? I, I, what, what's your sense for that? I don't know if there are regrets. I mean, I, I think, I mean, first of all, I think McConnell could have brought, got him, could have gotten him close, maybe. I mean, you've gotten Thune, Cornyn, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we'll never know. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, it would certainly create some, some short-term pain for the party. Trump would probably... You know, hem and haw, maybe take a walk. Um, and it would be hard, but you just, I don't know. It would be over. It like, would this, be was over. The, this is the Sean Spicer moment for everybody. Right. And they'd seen everything. I mean, Absolutely. at least Sean, the def- not a defensive Spicer, but like, especially like, oh man, day one, I'm managing right. the job. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They, they, this is now we're at day whatever, 1500. Like, yeah. by the yeah. time the, the capital gets. People seized. are dead. People are dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. It was amazing. It was really amazing. I think part of it is just. Probably trauma, probably just inertia, um, cowardice, um, 
not, I mean, I, I guess there was a strategic imperative there. I mean, by the way, McConnell doesn't get the blame he should because, you know, he could have, you didn't, he said, oh, we can't do an impeachment trial in two weeks. Why not? Why not? We just lived through the, yeah. like, what, you need, like, evidence? <laughs> what evidence I mean, do you need? You could it's do this TV. in two hours, yeah. right? Um, and so McConnell, you know, he I think knew, they have the votes if they do it in two hours. I think if they did, I think, I think so. I, I totally think so. But McConnell, you know, for whatever reason, and I'm sure there was some cynical, strategic, you know, calculation there. But, you know, once you knew it was going to be after January 20th, I mean, they had their easy answer, which is why impeach someone who's not a president anymore, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, eight days later, McCarthy goes to kiss the ring. McConnell says, I will support the nominee in 2024. And away we go. So what um, um, one more thing, just circling back to the hotel I meant to ask you, uh, is there like. What's your you're a media guy you're at the Atlantic now you get a little more freedom is there a media criticism of this and like what was happening at the hotel yeah. is insane like compare it to going back to Hillary and kind of yeah. how the global initiative was treated I, I was on the dark side back then I'm yeah. pitching you guys those stories that some yeah. of the stuff Hillary's doing was a little shady actually you know yeah. there was a little bit of inside baseball but compared to what you described like what's your sense now if you could go back four years was the meat is there anything the media could have done differently were they were you were yeah um well, no, the media is beyond reproach. Okay, so sorry. I, I don't know why you would ask that. No, um, I, I think um, I will say this. Um, I'm sure there was coziness going yeah. on. Um, you know, there always is. It's an occupational hazard. Um, I would like to think that. I, I just feel like if Hunter Biden opened up a little a little uh, bed and breakfast down right. in the White House, and right. the, and the Saudis were coming through and staying there, that that yeah. probably that probably be on Fox every night. And you I, would, I don't you would think you would think so. And I don't. And that yeah. just didn't wasn't the case. Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, there was plenty of like Trump Hotel sort of scene coverage. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think um, I will say, and this is my tribe, so I will you know. I, so I'm open about this. I, I thought there, I thought there was some great journalism done during those years. I mean, David Farenhold and Maggie Haberman, and just invest mostly investigative, and and then the sort of breaking news stuff from the White House. I thought was pretty good. I thought Twitter was kind of fun. I mean, but no, I mean, obviously, I mean, it's. I, I think the big critique, and it's probably very fair, was like there was way too much live coverage of his rallies um, on cable news. Um, I think, you know, the times where I worked during the Trump years, you know, probably was way too both sidesy at times. It maybe took too long for us to just call lies lies, call racism racism. Um, you know, that's a very big step for the, the New York Times. The New York Times is an ocean liner uh, as yeah. far as being able to do that. Um, but, you know, I think that's counterbalanced by like a lot of really, you know, valuable investigations into his taxes and stuff yeah. like that. So. Um, these, these are paired together, which shows mm-hmm. you the mindset of uh, the people of the Bay Area, mm-hmm. the state of our nation. Um, uh, uh, are Americans just tired of the messiness of democracy? Is Trump and Trumpism filling that void because there's a yearning for authoritarianism? The other question, I understand there's a lot of cowardice in D.C., mm-hmm. but how worried should we be about a complete collapse of democracy and the rise of authoritarianism? Yeah. Where are you at on that? On the whole yeah. having an autocracy thing. That's something we should be with. I'm against it, first of all. Um, you know, I, I think um, normally my reflex would be, all right, I mean, we'll get through this. Yeah. But I, I don't think that's overheated necessarily. I mean, I think, I think when you sort of combine the stealing of Supreme Court seats and changing of election laws and the willingness of 147 Republicans in the House and Senate to vote against certification based on nothing, um, which is, you know, it's a flat-out vote against the Democratic will of of the people. Um, I mean, that's a bright, flashing light because there might be more of them next time. Uh, There might be, you know... Who knows who the uh, who the Speaker of the House is going to be? Who know? Well, it could be Kevin McCarthy. It could be. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, so is that authoritarianism? Let's go back to our up down debate. Like, is yeah. that is the risk from coming from you? Do you think people are just don't feel like their needs are getting met, or this is just the uh, this is a unique threat yeah. of these Trumpist like corrupt bastards? I think they've gotten farther down the road to that than we have in a long, long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. First of all, and again, this is, this is 
you know, me being biased to my own position here. But, you know, the thing that slowed down Richard Nixon or stopped Richard Nixon ultimately was, you know, a few really surprising backbencher Republicans saying, oh, I'm voting for impeachment. Like out of nowhere, like Larry Hogan, the governor of, of, of Maryland's dad, uh, was a backbencher, you know, Charles Hogan is his name, backbencher, you know, kind of Nixon Republican, said, yeah, this looks really bad. I'm voting for impeachment. And like Nixon was freaked out by this. He goes, wow, if you can lose Charles Hogan, who is one of my guys. And then you know, there are a couple of others who said, yeah, I'm doing this too. And then all of a sudden tapes come out and Barry Goldwater, you know, elder statesman sort of marches down to the White House with a couple of other, you know, like high level you know, leadership Republicans in the House and, and Senate. And they said, Mr. Mr. President, your time is up. And, and Nixon had actually, unlike Trump, he had some shame. He had a sense of history. He was actually serious. I mean, you know, whatever, whatever it is, I mean, he, he knew that the gig was up and he left. Um, but it was ultimately Republicans that gave him that push. I don't think Kevin McCarthy and Mike Pence. And the trip from Charles Hogan to yeah. uh, Larry Hogan yeah. to just last night in Maryland, the Republicans yes. replaced or replacing Larry Hogan with a, a QAnon insurrectionist lunatic as their nominee uh, in Maryland. Excellent that's Maryland triplicate. That's a concerning yeah. trajectory. Yes, um, it is. You said something that someone else had asked about the Supreme Court. You said something interesting there. It stole a Supreme Court seat. Yeah, that's kind of right, right? I don't. That doesn't seem like that's I, AP style, but I, yeah. you know, I, I don't. What, I, what is? What are the ramifications of that? Well, Roe v. Wade. Um, yeah, I, you know, okay, all right, we could. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, don't the, line, I don't mean the. I don't mean the court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The literal. Um, uh, the, I mean, look. I mean, Mitch McConnell. You know, it's supposedly an institutionalist. I mean, yeah, we're all here for this Merrick Garland thing. I mean, to me, that was. I mean, it was just straight up bad faith. I mean, I, no one tried to defend it. I mean, they just were like, oh. I mean, it wasn't. The angry baseball man that writes for the National Review tried to defend it, did a very Yeah, what, what was his it. name? Uh, the baseball, what was his Dan name? He has a yeah. yeah, that dude. Oh, um, yeah, I mean, and then, you know, I remember um, when <laughs> I think McConnell was asked, so what if a seat comes up in the last months of Trump's administration? And this was in Kentucky, and McConnell laughs. He said, oh, we'll fill it. <laughs> Room breaks up. I mean, that's just straight up bad faith nihilism. It's like, all right, this is, we have it. We're going to do, do it. We're just going to hold it up. And I remember staking out the, uh, there was like a Republican like, caucus. There wasn't a lunch. It was like something where a bunch of Senate Republicans were gathered at some fundraising. You know, how you, like on the Hill, like you got to go to some other place to raise money. And they Capital all like dial. Yeah, something like that. So they were there for some lunch. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of reporters staking them out. And one after another were, you know, everyone was like, is it really hip? Isn't it hypocritical to, to, you know, to fill this seat now? But then you let you let this other seats. I mean, you know, just ask the question they had no answer for. They'd all like pretend to be on their cell phone. Some of them didn't pretend to the cell phone. They just used yeah. the pinky and the thumb. <laughs> um, and um, Al Franken used to do that. He used to like say, uh, he used to say, and he would, he would look across the hall to like John Tester and uh, he'd be like, yeah. he would just pretend it was kind of funny. But um, no, but like they had nothing to say. I mean, they were, they just were just, they just ran away. They just ran away and they just wanted to get through the day and not answer the question. And before you know it, you have like, a, you know, another conservative seat. And I don't know. I don't, that one is maybe the most inexpiable for me because it's like, I understand, like deeply, the yeah. progressive and, and what the response is. So this relates to the next question. Yeah. How does how does all that? I mean, this question is how is that democratic? How's the Democratic Party changed as a result of Trump? I, I can add on to that as a result of just this last six years of yeah. hard hard nosed nihilist Republican behaviors. Is it going to turn the Democratic Party, you know, into is it an arms race in this? That's, I, I, it's hard to kind of it's hard to. Stop. I would be shocked if a Republican president with a Democratic Senate, if there ever is a Democratic Senate. I mean, yeah. I, I'd be shocked if they fill the seat. Right. I mean, I mean, right now. I mean, and again, that's some. Um, I think they probably have every right to. It'll be weird and awkward. You know exactly what Republicans are going to say. It's like this has never happened before. Um, and um, but again, I mean, it sounds very quaint to say, but a lot of politics is based on. Good faith. Um, a lot of politics is based on norms, and um, you know, again, it's like you give that up, and it becomes an arms race because you know the Democrats are are not going to. I mean, they're just going to like do a tit for tat. Um, 
We're running out of time. We've done a lot of time on the Republicans. You wrote something else interesting uh, recently. So I have, this is one more question, but if you give an interesting answer, I might have a follow-up. All right. Um, so maybe two more questions. Um, Pressure's you, on. You wrote a, uh, for The Atlantic, I believe. I might have been your first Atlantic article about the, um, the age whispers in Washington oh. about, the, oh, about, the cur- about the current <laughs> yeah. president. Um, what you know? Where, where do you think that stands as far as Joe Biden's mindset slash capability um, of, of running? And if Joe Biden is stubborn and decides that he wants to still run again, are, are the whispers, the screams getting loud enough that you think he might even be challenged? Like, what, what do you think is the state of play in the Democratic Party? Yeah. Uh, well, Joe Biden is still old. That, that hasn't changed. Much. State of play on state that is play still on old. that still still old. Um, he uh, he's still stubborn. He's definitely stubborn. And, you know, he has every right to run again. Um, you know, unfortunately, one of the symptoms of Trump, one of the many bad symptoms of Trump is it has turned, you know, as, as I wrote in the book, I mean, it's turned Republicans into a very risk averse, very sort of walking like on eggshells kind of thing, because you don't want to offend your leader. Uh, it's also made the Democrats very risk averse. It's like, we, we have to, like, nominate the least scary person. <laughs> you know, that's what they did in 2020. And, you know, Biden had one job. Um, he was nominated because he was seen as electable, probably scared the fewest number of people. And he did his one job. I mean, it, the highlight of his career, or his presidency, occurred in November. And then he, you know, kind of calmed the thing down, acted like a grown-up, didn't tweet like a madman. And, um, wow, that was really nice. Um, then things went a little south. Um, and... He's in a real tailspin. I, I, I just think everyone thinks, you know, Biden has a longstanding view. And he used to talk this way um, when he was vice president because he would never rule out not running for president. Everyone thought he was too old then. But he would say um, in politics, you're either on the way up or on the way down. And once you've announced that you're no longer in play for a bigger job, people don't take you seriously. You're seen as a, as a lame duck. And uh, he still kind of thinks that. Um, which I think is unnecessary because I think he's president and I think that will be what he's remembered for. But I also think that, look, I think if he were to say, look, I'm going to be 80 in November, uh, I'm going to be 82 by the time. I mean, he's going to be really old. He'll be 80. He'd be 86 by the end of his next term. Um, and he I just think it would it would send a message that like. I'm, I'm not afraid of this party is not afraid of its future. We are. And, you know, Kamala Harris, I, I, I don't think people see her as an heir apparent. I mean, she might she might be. I, I don't know. But I'm, she's certainly not like the, the surefire, you know, heir apparent at this point. But just like like unleash like the next generation, like send the, the next group out to Iowa and just debate the future. And I don't know. I, I yeah. What's would, your sense for the odds? Like, do you like what just you know? You, I, you don't have any. I, I you know I I think as long as he's alive and healthy um, and feels up to run? yeah probably I yeah. Mean, and so then, do you think anybody challenge him? I was it, talking to a, a, a rich democratic yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. uh, politician and try, trying to kind of needle him around. Use my I'm a I'm a journalist now. It's, yeah, it's a new, it's great. A new thing. No, it's good to trying have to be team. like. Would you think about it? Yeah. You know, do one of the things. You got money, and yeah. um, and I didn't get anything. I didn't get anything. Um, this is why you're the pro on this front. But I, no, you know, I, could that even? It happen? could totally happen. Yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, I, I don't. I, I think. I, I think the voters of you know, or whatever the new Iowa is, New Hampshire, would welcome it. I mean, I, I think it's at least it'd be a debate. It would. I, I think. I think if if I were like advising a Democrat who had national ambitions, um, who was worried about sort of stepping out of line, I would tell him or her to um, just go for it. I, I, I just think you should. What do you guys think about that? Should yeah, what do you think? Somebody do it. I mean, right? It, it's, uh, that's a good focus group. Um, a good focus group. Uh, what's, what's that? that? Is, is Gavin Final question: Is Gavin, is Gavin running? running? He looks like he kind of might be thinking about it. How's know. that? I don't know. I mean, I've already had to vote for Gavin like 17 times because <laughs> all the recalls, yeah. and I don't even like the last time. So when I did a Commonwealth Club for this town, uh, yeah. Gavin, then Lieutenant Governor Gavin, um, he moderated this. He was the Tim Miller of that group. And, Who did better? Uh, well, yeah, no, he was. Um, so when he was mayor of San Francisco, 
he was thinking about running for governor in 2010, and I did a Times Magazine story on on the big circus of a race for governor of California, which you know made it, it met the first prerequisite of a magazine story for me because it got me to California three <laughs> different times. Um, but yeah, it looked like you know Aunt Mayor Villaraigosa of L.A. was going to run. You know, Jerry Brown was making a comeback. It looked really, really colorful. And I spent the most time with Gavin, and we. We're in his office. I talked to him all the time, and he was sort of the focus, really colorful figure. And um, they stuck him on the cover because, you know, he, he was very visual. He was on a beach. And, um, was he with Kimberly then? No, he wasn't with Kimberly then. He was, he was coming off that scandal I'm with, uh, you know, wasn't it his campaign manager? Oh, no. We don't need that. Yeah, again. whatever. <laughs> there, was a, there was a scandal. Uh, but he was coming back from that. Um, he was very compelling. And... Um, they put him on the cover of the New York Times magazine, like the Gavinator. One week later, he announced he was running for lieutenant governor. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, so I, yeah, so I knew he'd be governor just a little early. But I used to, I used to tease him about you know how he had nothing to do as lieutenant governor, so he might as well moderate a thing with me. So we did. Yeah. Um, well, it would be the it would be the first potential presidential candidate to moderate a panel with you guys. Um, thank you Never so much, know. Lebo. That's all we got for the program. I really want to thank everybody for coming here. Yeah, a great crowd. You. Everybody that is there online. Uh, this program and others will be found on Commonwealth Club's website, CommonwealthClub.org. Be sure to purchase Mark's new book. I haven't I haven't shouted out the subtitle, which is so good. I'm jealous of. Thank you for your servitude. Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Uh, you can purchase it out back. Mark will sign it. He'll put a witty bon mod on there. Uh, I'm, t- I'm Tim Miller. Uh, hopefully I'll get invited back soon. And uh, this uh, edition of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.